Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. If you listen to the show, you know I'm a big fan of Perry Mason. I haven't met many Perry Masons yet, though. But today's guest, an attorney, and he's one of these guys that's almost always successful and that makes you think of Perry Mason. His name is Jesse Bowling. He's a partner with Stein, Fam, and Glass. And Jesse, it's great to have you on. Well, how did you get into the law in the first place? Because you seem like just the stuff I've read about you, you really enjoy this. You know, I, thanks a lot for the great introduction, Steve. I appreciate it and happy to be here. You know, I, uh, I've always loved to help people. And that's what kind of started my adventure into the legal profession is just this desire um, to you know help people out of tough spots and be there for them. And as it evolved, you become a therapist for your clients. You know, obviously a legal advisor, and it's just been a great fit all the way. And I would say I had a very close family friend who was an attorney, and she kind of led me down the path. Um, and the other thing is, is as lawyers, we write a ton, and that's one thing I've always loved to do. And so. Uh, just fell into it um, based on that uh, family friend's advice and guidance. And here I am today, a partner in a law firm, talking to you about uh, Elon Musk and his crazy Twitter story, uh, among other things. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to get into that in a second. But if people go ahead and um, take a look at what you've done, what's really cool about it is there's so much specialization in the world of law, and yet. You've worked in a number of different areas in terms of not only fraud actions and so forth, but you've been kind of on both sides of the aisle, too, where you're on for the people, but you've also been on for uh, these corporations, too. Is that kind of a thing where you enjoy the diversity of activities? You know, it's a great way of putting it, diversity. Uh, One cool thing about being a lawyer is that no case is the same, right? You're not dealing with the the same situation over and over and the the diverse background of cases that have come to me it's really i tough cases come my firm's way and have come my way and those tough cases just come in every shape and size with different clients who have different needs and wants and yeah i've really enjoyed it because you know after a couple of years of litigating a case and trying it you move on to the next one and it's a completely new fact pattern so I would say a, a lot of lawyers out there specialize and really just do one type of niche thing, but I kind of embrace the chaos and uh, like to take whatever comes my way. Yeah, and you're not afraid of any background or any different names. I want to talk about a couple. I mean, there's there's a, a load, people, let me tell you, of different things this man has been involved with. But a couple that just jumped out at me that I wanted to ask, one was you represented the MBA uh, consultant, a guy named Jonathan Giboney. Uh, in terms of copyright infringement with broadcast copyrights. I'm a little familiar with that. That uh, is an interesting thing because so much of that, uh, you know, we always see that part about, hey, 
if you try to uh, mess with this, we'll go after you. I mean, anybody that's watched NFL football has seen the beginning where they say these are rights are protected. Was that something where uh, there was a lot of established uh, law and so forth, or was that something kind of where you were coming from the outside trying to do something different? Uh, great way of putting it. I, I, I also like to use the phrase, that was a little bit of the wild, wild west when it comes to copyright law. It's not something that had really been explored because, you know, in that case, my client was just taking small snippets and clips from copyrighted television programming and, of course, putting them together uh, in kind of a unique package to explain draft prospects, you know, current NBA players and things of that nature. And so it's not something that ever really like was tested before and so it was a unique case interesting arguments on both sides you know a lot at stake um and we were able to get a, an incredible outcome in a confidential settlement for everybody involved and so that was it you know I, I mean that's the unique precipice of the law right there uh there were no answers but we were able to navigate those waters now, have you seen the law tighten up on that? Because I know sometimes just trying to do something where you want to pull a piece of music, for example, and that's a whole other world of copyright. But like on YouTube, it's automatically pulled. I mean, that's how tight they have it there. Has it gotten that way? Or is there still, you know, there are guys like you that can go out there and go, hey, let's look at this a little differently. So really good point. You know, just uh, YouTube is kind of under a different set of rules for how it has to pull things off its uh, its platform. And, you know, it, just because they pull something off their platform doesn't mean it's right or wrong. They just have some requirements when somebody notifies them of what they have to do. And, if it, you know, one thing is it, civil litigation, it's, you know, generally about money, right? It's, you know, mm-hmm. people who are protecting their rights and they want to get paid. And so a lot of the the minor issues that come up never get litigated. So you never get answered because, you know, one party just acquiesces or there's not enough money at stake to really go the uh, distance. But, uh, you know, at this point in time, it is an evolving area of the law. And I would say a lot of times the, the cases settle just because there's an economic advantage one way or the other, uh, you know, with music, for example, if somebody's using a, a snippet on YouTube or another platform right that, maybe the artist comes in and says, hey, look, just pay me a really small royalty based on what you make, and then the case resolves. So a lot of it doesn't go the distance, but you're starting to see more and more cases get litigated just as we enter this new world where everything's at our fingertips on the Internet. So it's something we look at all the time and advise on all the time, but you'd be surprised that the number of cases don't you know, usually don't even make it to court, right? Um, right? Because they resolve beforehand. Well, I find civil litigation very interesting. I mean, I know everybody, you know, getting back to the Perry Mason thing, of course, it's always about murder and criminal defense and so forth. But it's even like one other area of music, which is you're seeing coming up now is, do people steal music? And from what I understand, I, I have spoken with somebody who was imminently involved in this whole Led Zeppelin thing with Stairway to Heaven, and was that really taken? And it sounds like it's taken. But music is kind of funny, right? Because then you get into things that uh, aren't in writing, and then you kind of have to go to intent and so forth, because two people could have the same melody in their head, right? I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, you know, it's the intent element of copyright law. I always say that if you have two musical geniuses at the opposite ends of the country and they come up with the same song, 
without ever knowing about each other, there's no violation of copyright. So copyright in the word, there has to be copying, as you've alluded to. A lot of times, um, you know, those cases, you know, for example, Led Zeppelin, you know, intent is established just by the prevalence of the songs. Right. That issue, right? You know, would a jury believe that this person never heard this song or that song? A lot of times it's circumstantial like that. Other times it's clear cut and you have a... Uh, you know, a party, a defendant in a copyright action, and it's very clear that they knew about the plaintiff's work before they engaged on whatever work of art they uh, is being alleged infringed. And so that really comes down to the discovery phase, right? You know, first people point fingers at each other, uh, say things, but, uh, you know, once you get into litigation and discovery starts, you know, the email correspondence always tells the story. Right. We're we're creatures of uh, communication now and communications are at our, you know, the ability to communicate at our fingertip. And so, you know, you get somebody's emails and you see where you know, who they sent what about this piece of uh, artwork or music that's at issue. And usually it tells the story right there. Well, you mentioned very clear and that kind of jumps out because I guess there is a possibility that somebody could be walking somewhere and they hear some music. They don't think anything of it, and they move on. And then later on, when they're trying to think of something, how much of that is a direct uh, is a direct steal? I guess a copy, and I guess that's the whole part about very clear, and that's the the vague part where you want to hire the right attorney, depending on what side of uh, the trial you're at. Yeah, you no, know, good point. I, I would say that uh, you know it, it's all it, it comes in the case you just mentioned right there would be circumstantial. So I'd be sitting in front of a jury in a federal courthouse if I was on the defense side saying, hey, there's no evidence that, you know, my client ever heard this song. And the other side, if they're doing their job, would point to, you know, the prevalence, hey, look, my my client's song, the plaintiff who got ripped off here, it's heard everywhere. So, you know, the other side, this defendant admitted that they were walking around a, a Barnes and Noble or a grocery store. Yeah. You know, my client's song gets played in that, so he must have known or she must have known. So it's an interesting point, and it's important you argue those things in front of the jury. And a lot of times the jury, they they go with their who they believe, obviously, right, of who they feel like will be vindicated when things are said and done. And that comes a lot – it comes down to both the client. And you know how they uh, they do on the stand, and it also comes down to the lawyer um, and having credibility with them. And so, a lot of times, you know, in an uncertain situation, those are the two most important factors. Well, Jesse, this is why we have you on because you make something that's very can be very complex, nice and clear to people. People get it, and that's why we wanted to talk with you about this Elon Musk thing. So let's talk a little about that. We all know he was going to buy Twitter. Now maybe he's not. Kind of run us through the legal process in that because I hear he can lose a lot of money, but he obviously, to a guy like him, it's all relative. What's a lot of money versus a lot of money? Kind of walk us through that if you would. It's a great point, and I think a, a starting off fact is you know, today, roughly, Elon Musk, the wealthiest man in the world, is worth $271 billion. And I think you made an important point there about you got to put it into context. And originally, his plan was to buy Twitter for $44 billion. So, you know, a pretty penny for just about everybody in the world except for Elon in this particular situation. And, you know, 
I think the issue with Twitter and Elon, I always look at these things and I try to figure out what is really at stake here, right? Is it Twitter? Is it, you know, their public persona? Um, and the answer is all of the above. But I think the most important asset at stake here is actually Tesla. And if you look at Tesla, kind of explains what happened here. So, you know, I'll give you a few dates. April 13th, right, Elon Musk texts his offer to Twitter. $44 billion, he uses the $54.20 per share. You know, he's got to get that 420 in there. <laughs> and, you know, agrees to basically buy Twitter, and ultimately the contract they signed um, had Elon buying it in taking the company private, meaning it would be delisted from the stock exchange and Elon would own it and ostensibly clean it up and uh, maybe bring it back public, maybe not. Um, and that was a premium at the time. The current stock price was probably about $10 less than that, a little less than that. So he was willing to pay a premium. And you know, the important thing is just how quickly that transaction closed. They closed in two weeks. The, the agreement at issue here was, clo- uh, was signed on April 25th. And that quick close means that Elon really wanted to buy the company as is, right? I, I mm-hmm. don't think this, you know, a lot of commenters and media people have said maybe he was just, you know, engaging in a prank or wasn't serious, but that quick close in the terms of the contract make it seem like Elon wanted to buy it right away. And I think where he got caught up is after that, um, you know, the tech shares just dropped dramatically, both Twitter and Tesla. And I think that Tesla part is the important thing to look at. Right. And so, you know, Tesla, uh, which is Elon's primary source of wealth, his uh, shares in that company were worth about $180 million when he made the offer, mm-hmm. and it dropped down to $118 million uh, on May 24th, about a month later, when Musk start try- started trying to pull out of the deal. And, you know, the, the reason I think Elon ended up getting out of the deal is because his control of Tesla uh, was at stake. He had to, or else he could potentially lose control of Tesla if he bought Twitter. The way to look at this is the $44 billion that Elon Musk needed to buy Tesla was a combination of his own money, but a lot of financing. And those financiers, in order for Elon to buy it, they put up his Tesla stock as collateral. And the way it works um, with corporate contracts in this realm and loan transactions is that collateral isn't dollar to dollar. So if I'm trying to buy $44 billion, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't get to just put up $44 billion, uh, you know, dollars of stock. I have to put up twice or maybe even three times that. And so if you, if in order to buy Twitter, if you assume Elon was putting up $100 billion of his test of stock, you know, that huge drop, right, should, you know, meant that he was putting up, you know, 80, 85% of his stock in the deal, and that left him vulnerable to other parties who might want to try to get in on Tesla if something happened to the Twitter deal, and he ended up losing all that money. And so I think Musk was in a situation where he had to pull out because of the drop in his stock value, and it just, you know, he couldn't mm-hmm. afford losing 
uh, his control of Tesla. And so the last point of it is, you know, how much of Tesla does Musk actually own? It's only 18% or maybe a little bit less now, but the corporate governance, rule, governance rules of Tesla give that 18% is effectively Elon Musk has a, has a Trump vote over everything, right? right? The, everything that is decided in the company uh, it's a super majority vote, and so really, practically speaking, nothing happens unless Elon Musk votes for it. And if he loses half of that 18 percent, or even more, which he was at potential risk for, he loses that veto power. And I think that's in the end why this all ended up going down, which is just an unfortunate set of circumstances yeah. for both Musk and Twitter because they're 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 both. Uh, grasping now in this lawsuit. Yeah, and the thing Musk also brings, though, is he has a certain celebrity that very, very few people have in this world. What he says goes. I mean, he puts out a tweet on almost anything, and it can affect the market. It affects a lot of different things, so... I'm sure Tesla, as as a company, sure as heck doesn't want him. It's not the same company without him having that type of control. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Musk is, you know, the most I, I, I'm, we've never really had anybody out at, like him before. And when his stamp is on something, I mean, just, you know, just the fact that he offered to buy Twitter, I think Twitter's stock increased, you know, 24% just when he was trying to get involved. And he's one of those rare people, maybe the only person that could do that. It's an incredibly good point. And yeah, like I said, you know, Tesla is his baby. I mean, that is the, the key to all the things that he wants to do. And Twitter is a side project. Let's be honest here. Right. I mean, going going to Mars, building environmentally friendly, uh, amazing electric cars. That's that's Musk's game. Twitter was going to be a side project, and so he just there's just no way he's going to risk those types of assets to you know buy Twitter and help fix it as a side project. Absolutely. Well, you think he's pretty genuine in terms of uh, his importance of free speech and so forth, right? I mean, that was really. I mean, aside from this, you know, kind of the attention grabbing, it also was a thing where he felt, and he's probably right, that if that's supposed to be the town square, it's kind of lost a little bit of that, you know. And and he was, and, and but maybe by him just drawing attention to it, is is good. If nothing happens, it'll still be good because at least he drew attention to it. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree with you on that. The town square aspect, he brought a lot of notice to it. He brought a, not a, a lot of notice to the fact that, you know, it looks like a lot more users um, of Twitter are bots than maybe we thought before, potentially. Mm-hmm. That hasn't been adjudicated yet, but he brought that up. And I, I think those are important things. The one thing I would say about Musk is whether he knew it or not, um, you know, he's got himself in a predicament now. And we, we've known Musk. You know, he's a gambler, but this is one of the first instances where he's gambling with his own money, right? right? A lot of investors have put a lot of money into Musk, and he's always benefited from him, but this is the first time where he really went out on a limb with his own personal wealth. And, you know, look, he, it, the, it, the, if anybody can handle a curveball, Musk can. But you know, after he signed this agreement on April 25th, if you look at the terms, it's pretty clear he was ready to buy this thing and then... Over the last two months, everything's kind of turned on him. Well, last question for you then. 
uh, you know, you're a winner. There's no question about it. You're not afraid of things like that. How do you like to have to work with a guy like a Musk or somebody with that kind of personality? Do you, do you like it as a challenge or as, boy, does that make your job harder or is it both? So I would say everything, everything in this business is a challenge and client relationships are part of it. And maybe the hardest part of my job on a day-to-day basis is you know, advising my clients, telling them what I think from the legal ramifications, but also, you know, backing them up even if I don't agree with their decision. And I think once you kind of take a step back and realize with an individual like Musk and other high net worth individuals that I uh, represent, you know, there there is a certain ego involved. They're, they're all geniuses in their own way. And sometimes you just got to advise and write it out. It is it can be tough, but if you just believe in your clients, which I always do, uh, it makes things a lot easier. And certainly Elon's a guy that you know we can believe in, given his track record. No question about it. Well, Jesse, this was a real pleasure. If people want to follow you, where's the best way for them to do it? Well, I recommend if they uh, want to check me out, uh, LinkedIn, Jesse Bowling, and it's on Sam and Glasses. Uh, the best way to look me up and kind of see what I've been doing. Our firm has a website. If you just Google it, I'm also on there. and You can contact me uh, via email. That's probably the best way to find me on the Internet. Well, if you can afford him, this is the guy you want. <laughs> Jesse, it was great having you on today. It was a really good conversation. Appreciate it, Steve. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go to